Good morning. Uh, my heart is full, just full of worshiping our, our good God and Savior and uh, full of love for our church, for Fondren Church, the work that he's uh, doing in our midst and just so grateful for that. Uh, this morning I was getting sentimental and I was up here in this room. It's uh, Woodland Hills. Historically, it's their radio room. They used to broadcast sermons uh, from that room and it's sort of become my prayer closet before church and Gary walked in as is, as is his custom and kind of interrupted me and uh, so we we're just kind of encouraging each other. And I said, you know, uh, Gary, there's not many Garys. And he just got like emotional, like that just kind of impacted him. He wanted a hug. And I go, no, no, no. Like literally there aren't many guys with the name Gary anymore. <laughs> um, yesterday I, I consulted babynames.com. You can go do your research here, but there's not a lot of guys named Gary. In fact, if you're in the room and you're under 20 and your name is Gary, stand up and I'll give you uh, 20 bucks. You guys are looking around. There's not going to be anybody. I'm telling you, there just aren't many Garys left out there. And if you know, if you ever watch Jimmy Fallon when he does, eh, Sarah, eh, and the, the, the crazy zany stepdad is named what? Gary. Yeah. But there aren't many Garys. And you know, there aren't many Tophers either. That's a unique name. And uh, I mean that, the, the double meaning. There, there, aren't, there just aren't many Tophers. Oh, don't you appreciate this guy and his talent for leading us? And I got to see the real Topher Friday. We played golf together. And I didn't know he cussed and threw clubs and had anger issues. But everybody needs the gospel, right? Hey, we're in a series called Hard Questions, and you guys have really thrown them at me. I was hoping for some compassion, some consideration, just a little bit of respect. Maybe you'd throw a softball my way, but you guys, honestly, I'm just going to tell you, I'm calling you all out. You're a sadistic group of people. And uh, we're going to follow up this series with an eight-week series called Easy Questions. But uh, they've gotten, they, they are getting, I would think, uh, progressively more um, higher in their uh, difficulty. And the, the first week we looked at, uh, are we living in the end times? That was your sixth most popular question. And last week, we asked a tender one, but uh, we asked an important one, especially in the day that we're living. Uh, is suicide an unforgivable sin? And I told some of you not to go back there, but I told some of you this week that a lot of you look at preachers and you think, man, these guys kind of, they know a lot. They have their theology tightly wound and it's systemized and packaged tightly. And they, they're ready to give the answer at all times. And this past week humbled me as I prepared for last Sunday's message and learned so much as we looked at what scripture teaches and what mental health professionals are saying and the statistics, pardon the cliche, that are alarming in our, in our world today. And I'm just praying Isaiah 26.3 over you that um, God will keep you in perfect peace, your mind in perfect peace as it stayed on him. I, I want to be a church that points people to Jesus and the, and the hope that he gives. Today, we're going to tackle this question. It's um, the fourth most popular that you sent in. What happens to those who never hear about Jesus? I believe that there's a question behind that question. And if we're going to deal with hard questions, we might as well look at the questions behind those questions. There's sort of an unstated implication behind this question. And it is the following. You get this, right? You know where I'm going with this. But um, do those who never hear about Jesus go to hell? And that, that for us, I think for all of us, um, sane, level-headed people, um, I think it sort of brings into question the, the very fairness of God. Does this idea or what the Bible teaches or what some of you think the Bible teaches, does it lead us to a God who's capricious, unloving, and unjust? 
And what I want to do this morning in answering this very important question is to go around it for a little bit and then come back to it. But in going around it, uh, I want to wed it with uh, Marriott to two really important assumptions. These assumptions are popular. They're very appealing. But are they true? And the first assumption is this. um, All religions are the same. You guys know this, right? If you grew up in a Christian bubble, just going to Lifeway and Chick-fil-A and a Christian school and a church and hanging out with Christian friends, you went off somewhere. And even if where you went off was Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Millsaps or somewhere, you were introduced to someone that they didn't teach you about in church. Uh, You were taught in church that that guy or that professor, that lady is just stupid. And you found out someone really important and they introduced you intellectually to pluralism, tolerance, and multiculturalism. Are all religions the same? Now, this idea sounds good and there's something I believe, I'm just being honest, something in every heart where we want to believe this to be true, right? George W. Bush, back in that election, he said, I'm a uniter, not a divider. Don't you want to be a uniter? Don't you want to bring everybody together in one nice global village? But are all religions the same? The great illustration to this is the idea of the mountain. It's the the peak, the summit. And what's the idea? That many different paths can get you up the top of the mountain. You can go on this side, you can go on that side, you can take this path, you can take that path, you can take... Um, a mountain bike, you can take a moped, you can take a helicopter, you can take a hot air balloon. But either way, we're all going to be at the top singing some Drake, started from the bottom, now we're here. All religions are the same. The second assumption undergirding this is it's arrogant to claim exclusive truth. The idea that nobody has a monopoly. As Americans, what do we feel about monopolies, right? We, don't, we want there to be competition so that those guys with cutthroat competition, they can give us the best products and services at the lowest price. We don't like the idea of a monopoly. We resist that. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, New Age philosophy, Scientology, all these things are, are, contribute to the world in which we live as God designed it. Every Every political party, every philosophy, every religion, every social group contributes to the world uh, in a healthy way. Very popular, very appealing, but is it accurate? First assumption, are all religions the same? I would say to you, what about the points of conflict? Buddhism, do you know? asserts that there is no personal God. How could that be true? How could Buddhism be true saying there is no God when Christianity and and Christianity be true if it asserts that there is a personal God? How can uh, Orthodox Judaism be true when it affirms that there is no life after death while at the same time Christianity be true when it says there is life after death? How can Classical Islam have a valued ethic of killing the infidels and Christianity at the same time have a valued ethic of love your enemies. What about the very points of conflict? You see, you don't have to get deep at all to realize that all religions are not the same. In fact, I would say to you that not only are all religions the same, I would say the reality is that Christianity, again, accept it or reject it, but Christianity is unique. It's unique among all the religions, all the isms and schisms out there. And if I gave you a word, if I gave you a person, of course, it would be Jesus. And if I gave you a word, you know what I'd give you? I'd give you the word grace. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, some of you know it. For by grace you've been saved. Not as a result of works that anyone should boast. If you categorized every major dominant religion and teaching, everyone that I'm aware of, you, you, could, you could capture them in two words, D-O. But with Christianity, it is a four-letter word. Don't. I'm sorry, not don't. <laughs> done. Let me get that right. Done. Jesus says done. What, what, Jesus said seven things from the cross, and among them, the last words he said were what? It is finished. It is done. There are some don'ts. We'll talk about that in another sermon series. But done, it's done. It's not do, it's, it's done. To, to, to capture this, let me inform you about uh, the Buddhist teaching. The Buddhists have a great story in their literature, ancient literature, about a son. And the son lived at home with his father and older brother. But the son decided that he wanted to rebel. And he wanted to take his inheritance early. And he did that. The father begrudgingly gave him all of his inheritance. And this son went to a far distant land. And he lived it up. Wine, women, song, drugs, promiscuity, rock and roll. He lived it up. He squandered his wealth and he ended up in a really bad place. This son goes back home. What do you do when you're at wit's end, when you've, you, you throw in the towel, you don't, you don't know what to do? He goes back to what is familiar, to what he loves with great hope. The Buddhist story is different than the story that Jesus taught. In ancient Buddhist literature, the son, when he goes home, he's greeted by the father and the father says, you must pay for the penalty of your past sins by living the rest of your life in servitude. Now, a lot of you are aware of Jesus's story. This story in the Buddhist faith is very familiar to a story that Jesus taught, recorded for us in all of your Bibles in Luke chapter 15. This son goes away and he too uh, wastes his life in riotous, rebellious living. He ends up in a pigsty. That's pretty low, isn't it? A pretty filthy environment. And he goes back to the father. But in Jesus' story, remarkably unique among all teachings, no other person like the person of Jesus, no other teachings like the teachings of Jesus, no other faith like the Christian faith. Jesus teaches that the Father sees him as he scans the horizon and he runs to him and does what? He gives him a ring and his robe and a kiss and a steak from Shapley's and a, a filet and a Merlot. And it's, it is a celebration. You see, Jesus wants you to get that there's no do, do, do. There's no Tibetan prayer will, no um, pilgrimage to Mecca. There's not enough doors you can knock on and literature that you can hand out. There's not enough good works that you can do. There's not enough reincarnations that you can go through to, be, to gain acceptance from the Father God, to win his approval, to earn his favor. You are loved, and that's the good news of the gospel. There's no doing. It, the work has been done. For by grace, you've been saved subversive, provocative, shocking, amazingly unique. The teachings of Christianity, the bedrock of our faith that flowed from Judaism. And Jesus brought something entirely different to the world. 
All religions are the same. I would say to you that Christianity is unique. The second assumption is that it's arrogant. It's arrogant to claim exclusive truth. Now, did Jesus claim exclusive truth? Did he? John 14, 6, the most famous of all passages. Um, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 2,000 years ago, a mini Middle East crisis erupted from that very statement. Do you think he knew what he was doing? Do you think he knew the claim? Do you think that, you knew the, that he knew the exclusivity of it? I am the way. In fact, if you know church history from the gospel narratives from Acts You'll know that the church in Acts 9 too, that they, they formed in little communities. They worshiped in the temple. They came and gathered in rows like we're doing today all these years later. And they worshiped their God and, and Savior. And then they gathered in, in small groups and they connected. And they shared life together and lived out all those one another's in close community. And they were known because of their great love. When others would retreat from the city, they would go into the city, loving on the poor and the orphans and the widows, the least, the last, the lost. They loved in a radical different way and they were generous. They were very generous. And they were known, it was known as the way. Before, in fact, before they were called the Christians, they were called the way. Jesus said, I am the way. They took that seriously, didn't they? But unlike you and I, most of us, uh, they, weren't, they didn't suffer the persecution and the ridicule. And they didn't stand to lose. Well, we didn't stand to lose like they did. They had a lot at stake and they were committed. They were known as the way. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No doubt Jesus knew that there's a lot of things that we can do with the truth. You know that, don't you? There's, there's a lot that we can do with the truth. In Romans chapter one, in verse 18, it says that we can suppress the truth. In Romans 1.25, it says that we can exchange the truth of God for a lie. In Romans 2.18, it says we can deny the truth. In Acts 20.30, it says we can distort the truth. In James 3.19, it says we can deny the truth. In James 5.19, it says that we can wander from the truth. The apostle John uh, the disciple that Jesus loved, John was, was close and he, he desired discipleship and multiplication. And he said, I have no greater joy than this. What? That my children walk in the truth. Second Peter 1.22 tells us that we can grow, we can receive the truth as it's planted in us. There's a lot of options for the truth. Second um, Timothy 3.7, Paul tells his protege that there will come a time when the, there's a group of people who listen to this because we see it in our day. Uh, they are ever learning, but they are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we see that, don't we? We, we see it in our land today. We see it in the age of the internet, the information age. Some people always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Acts 17, 11 tells us about some noble believers in the early days. It says that they, they received the scripture, the truth in all eagerness. And it says they went on and they examined the scriptures daily. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. That for a lot of us, for a lot of American Christians, we receive the word with eagerness. You ever, you, have you done that back in the day at, at youth camp or you walk the aisle? You were somewhere and you received, I'm going to bet a good number of you, most of you have probably received the word with great eagerness. But very few of us examine it daily. And the truth is something 
that needs to be. I share, I've shared with you before, um, I've spent a couple of Easter's sharing this, but why I am a Christian. I've read the philosopher Bertrand Russell, why I'm not a Christian, and I just can't buy that. And I've shared with you why I am a believer, but all of it hinges not on some of the difficulties that we have to overcome in the scripture. We're going to get to that later, but because of the person of Jesus. I said it here on Easter Sunday, there's only been one man to predict his death and resurrection, and he pulled it off. Only one. And the fulfilled prophecy and the empty tomb is a beautiful testimony to the uniqueness of Jesus. But is it arrogant to, ex- to, to claim exclusive truth? No doubt the disciples in the early church got it. And from what we may wince from, they did not. In Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus. Now in Acts 4.32, it says that they had to decide to obey God rather than man. What does that mean? They got some persecution from that. This is not the most popular idea out there, but is it true? Several years ago, 33 miners in Chile, in Mississippi we say Chile, but it's Chile. But 33 miners got up one morning, they had breakfast. Most of these men probably kissed their wives and some of them their kids, and they grabbed their lunch pail and they went off to work. And they went into this copper mine some 2,000 feet. And suddenly, unbeknownst to them, 7,000 tons of rocks collapsed on them, caving in on them and closing them in. Two days went by. Every expert around the world in rescue was alerted, engineers, geologists, everybody to the scene. Four days go by. A week goes by. Two weeks go by. Four weeks go by. Two months go by. 68 days go by. And one man in a specially designed capsule created in Northern California, he penetrates the depths to where they see the light from this capsule. It was only uh, 21, I don't understand this, I look at smithsonian.com, but 21 inches in diameter was the size of this capsule. And they made 33 men still alive, some clinging to life, were taken up one at a time. I wonder who they picked to go first, right? I'd be like, I'll go first. I know what Jesus taught about the first being last, but I'll go first. I don't know how they decided the pecking order, but 33 men were taken up in that capsule, 21 inches in diameter, to the surface, to the sky, to the sunlight, to life, to food, to water, to their families. Incidentally, the men had a Bible down there. Some of you may remember this story. They centered themselves in God's word and in prayer, praying for their rescue. Now I want to ask you, everybody here, even the people on the back row of the balcony, is there one person in this room who would say emotionally or intellectually that that man in that capsule was narrow-minded? The man who went down, who penetrated, who offered them release, who said to them, I've got a way. I've got a way out of here. Here is the way. There's no other way, but there's this way. Is there anybody in this room that would, that would basically conclude that he's being arrogant or narrow-minded? You see, there, there's a narrow, for them, there was a narrow way of escape. 
I'll be honest with you. I've shared this with some of you, and I'd, I'd sit down with anyone who desires to. But I went through a time of agnosticism in my life, of big questions. It got the best of me. But I do believe I stand here today saying this, that you don't have faith unless you go through doubts. And you and I, God, he'll frustrate you. And he'll take you to a place where you'll not just need to receive the word with great eagerness, but you'll need to examine it. And through that process, there was a time, and in fact, even today, let me say this, even today, I resist the idea, I don't want to be, y'all know how how I have a people-pleasing thing. I want everyone to like me, and that's a problem. Don't you know that? Matthew 23, Jesus said, woe is you. He pronounced judgment. Woe is you if everyone speaks highly of you. You're not a leader if you're about everybody liking you. We're not a church if we're playing to popular appeal. But man, I don't want to be accused of being arrogant and judgmental. I don't want that, do you? I don't want that. I don't want it for my life. But if there is a way, there is a way of rescue. And we can be saved and save others. Then praise God for that rescue. Praise God for for that way, for that way out, for that liberation. For those in sin who are under the dominion of the weight of sin. I say it often, but sin affects every one of us. Sin affects every part of us. And it separates us from our good and our holy God. Gandhi said, I like the Christ. I don't like the Christians. German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, I'll believe in your redeemer when I see those who claim to be redeemed be a little more redeemed. Mark Twain, my boy Mark Twain, He said, I've been, after hanging out with some religious people, I now see why Jesus loved to hang out with sinners. (laughs) You ever been there? You ever feel that way? How'd you feel when these protesters greeted us on Palm Sunday, right? You kind of want to rethink who you're hanging out with, right? Well, what is it you believe and what's different about what they believe? Because 1 Peter 3.15, one of my hallmark passages says this, I would love for our church to grow in this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for what? For the hope that is in you. I'm being silly, but I always draw a contrast. It doesn't say for the hate that is in you. There are things that we do that perpetuates the thoughts of Gandhi, Frederick Nietzsche, and Mark Twain and some of your friends around you and the popular culture at large. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. I've shared with some of you before this idea about hope. You know, we are hope creatures. Don't don't you have some hopes today? What are you hoping for right now? What's in your heart? Don't answer out loud. This is in a small group. But what is it? I mean, there's something I'm hoping for this. I'm hoping for that job, that promotion, that new house. I, I, I I, I hope I get that. I hope I get that job. I hope I get that house. I hope I get that girl. I hope I get that girl and she gets that job and we get that house. Like we have lots of hope, don't we? I hope, but we always hope in something. And the stark contrast is Jesus is saying, he knows Proverbs 13, 12 is true. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But he wants you and I to hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Be ready. 
But notice, this is what I want to say to you. Do it with gentleness and respect. The verse doesn't say, be an apologist machine and prove to everybody that God exists. In my 20s and even in my 30s, after I went through my period of doubt and then back to being emboldened in faith and a more robust understanding of my faith, what I believe and why I believe it, I used to, in my earlier days, start breathing heavy and I would be unsure. I would sweat a little bit when someone would ask me hard questions or I was with them and I would think I've got to be the one to lead them to Jesus. You know, that's nowhere in scripture. You don't have to be that. You don't have to be that at all, but you need to be ready to give the reason for the hope that is in you, the personal things that Jesus is doing in your life and do it what? With gentleness and respect. Big deal. Colossians 4 verses 5 and six. It tells us how we ought to walk in this world with wisdom toward outsiders. Live wisely among those who are not believers. How important is that? And make the most of every opportunity. Verse six, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everybody. There is a way for us to live. We can have a narrow laser beam accurate message for the world of salvation and hope. But we do not have to be narrow and arrogant and judgmental in our approach to it. So those are your two assumptions. And I would say to you with this one, is it arrogant? And I think uh, to, to claim exclusive truth. And I would say it's not arrogant. The reality is with this assumption is it's not arrogant to act upon the evidence. Back to our question. The question that several of you ask, what about those who never hear? I want to say this, and I realize that I'm going to separate myself from some of you in the room, but I really believe this is to be true. I've listened to John Piper. I've listened to David Platt. I've listened to J.D. Greer. I've, I've followed some of the links that you've sent me, and here's what I want to say to you this morning. I really believe that the scripture doesn't give us a complete answer on what about those who never hear about Jesus. I believe there's some mystery to this that would invite our humility, but I do think the scripture gives us, okay, I do think it gives us some very important clues. Matthew chapter seven, verse seven and eight. Jesus, this is the same passage. It's it's, um, culminating in the the Sermon on the Mount and he uh, talks about in this same context of scripture, he talks about the wide road and the narrow road and you know that Jesus taught that many are those who go down the wide road and few are those who take this narrow path and here's what Jesus said to you and I, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you for here's his promise, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Let me shatter a myth that's in this room probably for a lot of us. Here's a myth, and it's an outdated old idea. The outdated old idea that needs to be laid to rest is this, that the Christian West is trying hard to evangelize a spiritually troubled rest of the world. Do you know how untrue that is? I mean, wow. Some of you are going to travel just across the border to Matamoros this summer and others are going to be going to Cambodia. A couple of years ago, my own wife through Fondren Church went to South Africa last summer. A lot of you know I went to Cambodia. Well, before that, we were in Paris and other places. You guys travel. I highly encourage global mission trips despite some of your criticisms. They really can open up a whole nother world to us. But every time we go, you know what we found? Every team 
when they go, they find God in those cultures. Do you know that? Lay it to rest that there's the Christian West doing its best to reach other countries. In fact, it's been true for more than three decades now, and it's really starting to ramp up, is that other countries that were the objects of our missionary sending efforts are over here doing missionary work in our country. China, I don't get this, it boggles the mind, but by 2050, they say there's going to be 15 more New York cities in this country of China. I flew through through one of the the cities um, this past summer on our trip, blown away by this nation. But do you know that this church of Christ is swelling in its momentum. And many experts believe, a variety of sources here that I'm telling you, but by the year 2030, that the predominant religion in China will be Christianity. The U.S. Geological Survey informed us of what we all saw on CNN and Fox and MSNBC and all the other networks and affiliates. A 7.8 degree magnitude earthquake just rocked Nepal. Let me tell you something about Nepal. It's very personal for some of us, especially Jimmy and Mary Ellen Stewart and Bob and Martha Pennybaker and Scott and Deborah White and some people that are in a small group with a couple here. I'm going to show you their picture if we have it ready. I sent it here. This is a Sarah and Sujan Gamiri. And Sarah is from, well, she's not very exotic. She's from Brandon. But that's Sujan. And how cool is this? Sujan and Sarah own Fondren Salsa Dance Studio. Isn't that cool? I guess not. We got too many Baptists in the room, but I think it's cool. And I want to do some salsa, maybe some merengue later. My wife's shaking her head. Just not now. Well, I didn't mean now. We got a few more minutes. She's too literal. Not now. Um, They own the salsa dance studio right here. They own and operate it. They have someone else running it, obviously, as they uh, are in Nepal. And Nepal is Sujan's native land. I got an early morning text, uh, too early for a Saturday, Mary Ellen, from uh, the Stewarts and today from the Pennybakers to say, uh, praise God, they're okay. But you know, there um, a couple of thousand people, if I understand it, have, have been killed. It's, um, it's affected India, Bangladesh, Mount Everest. And as rescue workers uh, dig, they'll be digging bodies out of the rubble. Our folks are okay, and they minister there. And you know, in the 1980s, the the church was just a very small, persecuted minority. And today, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians in the land of Nepal, and it's growing rapidly. Now, I know they feel different comparing their land now with the land we're living in. But it's growing. In fact, Christianity is spreading and churches are forming in a hundred different people groups and dialects over in that particular part of the world. There are stories after stories of Hindu people in India having dreams and visions. Matthew 7, 8, ask, seeking and knocking and coming to faith in Jesus. And miraculously, someone comes into their path. Um, A Bible shows up. There is uh, a chance to enroll in an online seminary. Something is happening all around the world. And I believe what Jesus said is true. Those who have a genuine search. In Hebrews, it says, when it talks about faith, uh, those who seek him and seek him diligently can find him. They will find him. And, And I believe that about what Jesus, about what he teaches. Look at Romans chapter one. You could have crucified me if I preached this subject without this passage, okay? Romans chapter one. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky 
through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. What does that mean? That's a doozy, isn't it? I mean, it could mean this, or it could mean this, or you think it could mean this, or I think it could mean this. I mean, that last statement pretty much shuts the door, doesn't it? I mean, bam, no excuse. But what we learn, and I encourage you to examine the scriptures later, for my goal here is not to feed you. A lot of you like that. I want to be fed. I want to be fed. Well, okay, we want to feed you, but we want you to go away hungry, learning to eat on your own. His eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Here what you, here's what you see. You see the beauty of God's creation because everybody in every part of the world can see the sunrise. Everyone everywhere can see the sunset. Everyone everywhere can see a beautiful mountain. Everyone everywhere can see a newborn baby. You sure can if you come to Fondren Church because we got newborn babies out the wazoo. But you, we can see God's creation. And the creation... And what it stirs up in everyone and our conscience and the contemplation thereof can lead every honest searcher to the truth found in in God. This is pretty deep. Stay with me here. Helen Keller, kind of a famous story. She was born, as all of you know, she was born blind. She was born deaf. She was unable to speak. You have to understand that. And she was taught by a remarkably intelligent and compassionate woman in the state next to us over in Alabama. And this woman, this famous teacher, Annie Sullivan, was teaching her how to to do the sign language for the word God. And Helen Keller's response was the following. Oh, that's the word. That's how you do it. I always knew he existed. I just didn't know what to call him. And here's what I believe to you. Church, I think we need to progress. I think we need to advance. I think we need to understand that the world is round. But as the New York Times bestselling author said, the world is flat and we're living in a global village. And guess what? That's okay. And it ought to spur us to the the most zealous of missionary efforts and also a relaxation of understanding that God is doing a work that he alone can do that we don't always understand. I know I'm leaving some stuff hanging with you, but I want you to go and I really want you to think about that. A couple more passages and we're going to close. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Think about that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. You know, there are some things he's not gonna reveal to us. I told you that the scripture is not airtight, clear. Now, some people smarter than I would disagree with that and they would use Romans 1 to say that. But I believe there's still some things that are not completely clear. But he does give us clues. And there are secret things. And you know what I do? I leave those to God. I leave those to God. There's no no need for me to try to pretend to know something, to have some insider knowledge that you don't have or that God didn't give me. But look, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. You know what the Bible says over and over again? The things that are revealed to us, we better do something about them. 
We ought to do something about them. When you receive good news, what do you want to do? You want to share it. When I lived in the reservoir about, I don't know, 10 years ago, everybody was going to Dairy Queen on Lake. I'd never seen anything like the crowd that gathered at Dairy Queen. I thought Elvis was spotted in the drive-thru or Justin Bieber or somebody. Man, people, anybody, anybody remember that? I mean, it was a big deal. I'm indicting everybody from the reservoir. But it was just a big deal, the Dairy Queen. People were telling other people about Dairy Queen. When you receive good news, you want to talk about it, don't you? And here's what I'm saying to you this morning. We do know things that have been revealed. And the secret things, man, I give those to God. For I am not God. Next passage. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. I don't want to, I don't want to violate that. I want to give mystery to God as he, as he intends it. Last passage. Is there one? No, that's it. There's not another one. I want to make reference to Luke chapter 12. Jesus taught that to whom much is given, much is required. And implicit in that, by contrast, the opposite is true. And Jesus taught some parables, and if you think Jesus is just doing the tiptoe through the tulips, that he's just meek and mild, man, you're reading a different version. And Jesus taught some parables. Well, I've got a group of guys on Friday mornings. We're studying these parables. Some of them are pretty perplexing. And a lot of them have to do with judgment and the end times and the afterlife. And it's not all that pleasant. But Jesus taught, and again, it's not some people who criticize the faith. They're like, why didn't Jesus denounce slavery? In this passage, when he talks about a servant and a master, he's speaking into their culture. And he's saying to them, he's, it's a hard truth, it's hard for us to understand in the year 2015, but Jesus says that a servant who understands everything that his master wants from him and does not do it will be punished severely. The, the servant who doesn't understand all that his master wants and doesn't do it will be punished, but not as severely. Now Jesus, I think, did set up, he did denounce slavery in his life as he taught that the greatest among you are servants. And he was trying to do away with the pecking order and the hierarchy. But in these parables, it's very perplexing, but it's also liberating and, and beautiful to understand that Jesus is saying that we don't all, not all of us have equal access to the same information. But guess what? There's a, there's a phrase, I'm, I'm taking this, put that quote if you, up if you will. It, it comes from Genesis 18, 25. From the very beginning, God said this, and I believe it to be true. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What about those who've never heard the gospel? There are clues, there's creation, there's a conscience. There's a sovereign God who promises that everyone who asks, seeks, and knocks will, they will find. That God will lead them to faith. But I do know that I don't understand it all. And I know this, that I rest in the sovereignty of God for he's the right judge. What I'm saying to you, and we'll close on this, nobody in this room, nobody in this world, past, present, or future, will be able to end life one day and shake their fist at God and say, that is not just. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And I'll say this for the church. 
for whom much is given, much is required. Implicit in that very question, what happens to those who never hear about Jesus, is this idea that everybody who asks it has what? Heard about Jesus. Are you with me? And there's something on us as a church to share this message and be careful of our arrogance. Be careful of our judgment. Be careful of our narrow-mindedness. Be careful of our lack of wisdom and our lack of grace. There is a way to live with this good news that is the hope of the world. And my prayer is that we experience it, that we express it in a way that will honor him. I want us to be a church that preaches Jesus and sends people to preach Jesus to our neighbors and to the nations because it's good news. It's unique. Never been a message like it. Never been a person like it. Never can have the effect like it in your life and mine and anybody who can receive it. Let's pray. As we bow, our, our team is on their way up and this morning we're closing our service prayerfully as we take communion. And our commitment is to do that um, once a month on our final Sunday of each, each month to observe the Lord's Supper, to do what Jesus commanded, this do in remembrance of me. Everyone who's received Jesus can come to the table worthy today because of what Jesus has D-O-N-E, that four-letter word, because of what he has done for us. And some of the leaders you see, they're not skipping out on church early. They're just making their way to a station. And they'll be there. Some of these folks, they'll be there with uh, the bread, with the juice, the bread representing the body of Christ and the juice representing the blood of Jesus shed for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus would say, you can stop all your striving and you can stop trying to earn favor. You are loved, you're accepted. And this good news of the gospel today, as we, as we stand and sing, we're gonna follow Topher and the team and offer up praise as we sing. But all of you make your way up. Someone in front of you will lead the way. We have stations around and, and folks in the balcony to serve you as you think about Jesus. This is a holy time, a, a moment to say, God, I thank you that I don't have to trust myself to pay the penalty for my sin. That you, through Christ, you bridge the gap. God, we pray now and we ask, as we do often, that you would receive this act of worship. Um, those years ago, you taught to take what's earthy and what's ordinary and through a sacrament, through a, a, a focused mind, through a symbolic act, we could remember what you've done. And Lord, all around the room, there's sin. All around the room, there's lust and hate and joylessness and selfishness. And Lord, I pray as we take the cup and take the bread today that we would be reminded of the greatest act of sacrificial love ever. And Lord, let this act that we have been forgiven lead us to forgive and love in deeper ways in this room to our neighbors and to the nations. In Jesus we pray, amen. Would you stand? You'll be directed as we worship through communion.
We want to take this opportunity to thank you and just a couple of announcements real quick. We're glad you're here to worship with us today. Everyone that came in should have got a contact information card when you came in today. We need everyone in this building, regardless of whether you have filled out one before or not. Some of you may have filled out five. We need you to fill out one more. So like the greens, like this is so important that I need the greens to fill one out. And Gary, everyone fill this out. We're trying to update our databases and we don't want anyone to not get information that's pertinent. The next thing is baby dedication. All those newborn babies Robert was talking about earlier is coming up May 10th. So if you would like to participate in that service or know someone that would like to participate in that service, be sure to get with Emily Hood or Marianna Russell and they will let you know everything you need to know. We're glad you're here today. The sun is shining. God's creation and glory is evident around us. Take the time to enjoy that and share that hope with others. Thanks so much.